Acts chapter 16. And as you find that text, why don't you bow with me in prayer just for a moment. Our Father, it is our prayer right now as we come to you in the Word of God. This has been a a day for the Lord. This has been a day to worship you. We had such a wonderful time this morning hearing your Word, singing your praises, praying and fellowshipping one with another. And so, Lord, this evening, as we come to the end of the Lord's Day, would you calm our hearts? Would you enable us to hear from you? Would you enable us, Lord, to learn how to walk with you in such a calm manner, such a trusting manner? Would you enable us to learn to stop panicking, learn to stop worrying, learn to lay aside every anxiety? And it is a lifetime process, Lord, and I pray that tonight would be a part of that process, that we would be calmed before you, that we would be comforted before you, that we would be able to look at any trial, any pain, any time of waiting on you with confidence, with happiness in the Lord, and with a smile that our sovereign God has all things firmly in hand. So this evening, Lord, would you both thrill our hearts, would you calm our minds to understand that you are in control and we can give you praise for this. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. It's what some people have called the moment. And I didn't coin that term, but I think it's a useful term. The moment might be an actual point in time. Or it might be kind of a culmination of a dawning realization over a longer period of time. The moment is when you realize that you have now begun a time of waiting. A time where things are not going to go the way you wanted them to. You're now entering into the knowledge that, and if I can define waiting on the Lord, it is a time of being in a helpless position where you can do nothing except wait You have no recourse but to wait for the Lord to act on your behalf if, in fact, he intends to do so. The moment might be a single point of time. It might be the moment when a serious diagnosis is given. It might be a moment when terrible news is received, which won't work itself out anytime soon. Or it might be just any sort of negative shock or surprise which has a a factor of, of pain to it. Or the moment might be the conclusion of a long series of dashed hopes and wishes that finally ends with the comprehension, looking in the mirror, that I am in for a long wait. I am in for a time of just waiting on the Lord. And what's hard about that is that's a moment of realization when you realize that your time of waiting might not be finished in this lifetime, that it might be a lifelong wait. This might be the moment you accept the fact that your child will never be like other children. This might be the moment when you understand that a physical problem you're struggling with is going to go with you, in fact, to the grave. It might be the moment when you grasp that you are going to lose the battle that you've been fighting for a relationship. The moment sometimes feels like a sudden blow, and sometimes it feels like a dull ache in your gut which just grows over time because you know you have to face it. 
In any case, however the moment is for you, and you either have had one, are in one, or are going to have one, when we're called upon by our sovereign God to wait upon the Lord, the enduring, enduring that, that silence from the Lord, that silence from heaven, that moment is upon you, and now there are choices to be made. In that moment, there is grief, there is sadness, there are tears, there are even great heaving sobs of anguish. I have in my office... In this office, here in this building, had people literally on the floor sobbing in agony. And so we understand this. The tears and grief might not see in the end for a very long time. You, you know that you might be single-handedly keeping the Kleenex Corporation going for quite some time. And this is the aspect of learning to wait on the Lord that I'd like to address this evening. What it is we do at the beginning of our time of waiting, at the moment And so it's my hope to prepare you. Now, I want to say a little side note here. If you have already gone through massive times of waiting on the Lord and you didn't handle it as well as we're going to describe tonight, that's okay. We start today. Today is fresh. And so the Lord will very likely give you another opportunity to practice anyway. Now, we've labeled our time of waiting on the Lord as a time of being in the desert, in the wilderness of God, the time when we desperately need help and strength And to learn to have strength in the desert, we're putting together lessons, what I've called a biographical theology, from faithful individuals, faithful groups in the Bible. And we're constructing a series of B statements to understand how to wait on the Lord. First, Israel said, be thankful for God's mercies, that no time of waiting is completely devoid of the hand of God in your life. And then the second lesson we saw is that Israel also says, be wary of testing God, that our time of waiting is not an excuse to spiritually abandon the Lord. It is not an excuse to stop obeying the Lord. It is not an excuse to sin because I'm hurting. And so tonight we'd like to go to the New Testament and learn from these two legendary missionaries, faithful men of God, who did so very much to promote and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the lesson tonight is from Paul and Silas. And Paul and Silas say, be mindful of how you begin waiting. Be mindful of how you begin waiting. So if Paul and Silas could come and visit you in your living room and sit down with you and you mention to them, you know, I'm, I'm about to start this time of waiting. I'm waiting for something in my life. And it's very painful. It's very hard. They would, from their own ministries, be able to tell you a beautiful story. And they could remind you to be mindful of how you begin waiting. And in Acts chapter 16, I want to just jump right into the action In one moment, Paul and Silas are simply peacefully walking in the city of Philippi. They go pray, and the next moment they're arrested. They're dragged before Roman rulers of the city, and we pick up the action in Acts 16, verse 20. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. When the day began, they were peacefully walking to pray and when the day ended they find themselves in the maximum security inner section of the city prison the city jail fastened in place with their feet 
in stocks. They can't move. They've been beaten badly. They've been beaten with the official police force rods of the, the, the law enforcement. They were also beaten by the crowd that had joined in that day at the behest of the magistrates. I suppose one of them might have commented to the other, I guess today isn't going exactly how we thought it would. They suddenly found themselves in the position to wait on the Lord with no certainty whatsoever about their future. Well, how did they get here in the first place? Let's back up a little bit and let's, let's kind of move back into the action and set the scene. Undoubtedly, you are more familiar with the Apostle Paul than you are with Silas, but you know Paul. He's a great friend to us, a great advocate. But the Apostle Paul, he's the only only um, apostle added to the group after the ascension of Christ. He met involuntarily with the Lord Jesus himself. You remember this on the road to Damascus when Paul, then known as Saul, was a representative of the Jewish leadership to go and persecute Christians. He, was, he wasn't on the fence. He wasn't neutral. He was anti-Christ. He was anti-Christian. Well, he was confronted and blinded by a vision and a voice of the Lord Jesus Christ who clearly identified himself, and Paul came to faith in Christ. His sight was restored. He became a champion for the cause of the gospel and of planting churches all over the Mediterranean world. And of course, Paul is among our most prolific New Testament authors, having written about one half of the New Testament by book count. And so we know Paul. We're familiar with him. But maybe you don't know Silas as well. Silas is an absolute hero of our faith, there's only 16 references to Silas in the New Testament, but he makes quite a footprint. Four times in the New Testament, he's referred to as Silvanus. That's the same guy. He's mentioned by name in Acts, in 2 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, and 1 Peter. So he makes quite an impression in our New Testament. Most of the time that he's mentioned, he's mentioned along with Paul and Timothy. Timothy would join them in Acts 16, earlier in the chapter. And just like Paul, he was not only a Jewish Christian, he was also a Roman citizen. Acts 16.37 tells us this. In Acts 15, verses 22 and 32, we're told that Silas was a a great and respected uh, leader in the early Jerusalem church. Silas and Judas called Barsabbas, not Judas Iscariot, but Judas called Barsabbas, they were chosen as delegates to accompany the Apostle Paul and Barnabas to Antioch, the Antioch in Syria. There's two Antiochs in the Bible, one in Syria and one called Pisidian Antioch. But they went to the closer one, to the Antioch in Syria, to deliver and explain a letter that was given to address Gentile believers. And this letter contained a decision reached in the church council at Jerusalem regarding Gentile Christians and Jewish customs and how those two were to mix and match. Well, the delivery of this letter was extremely wise, and coming from Jerusalem, it was said to be a great success because it brought rejoicing to the believers in Antioch, according to Acts 15.31. And as a matter of fact, Silas himself was quite the preacher. He was quite the expositor of God's word. Acts 15.32 says that he encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And so he was not only a respected leader in Jerusalem, but coming to Syrian Antioch, he was able to preach the word of God and encourage them in the gospel. And so based on his excellent reputation and his ability with the word of God, when Paul separated from John Mark due to disloyalty, or disobedience of some kind, Paul then began his second missionary journey. And as Acts 15.40 describes, but Paul chose Silas 
and departed. Out of all the Christians, this is the man that Paul chose. He said, I want you to be my partner in the ministry. Later in his ministry, Silas would be the messenger carrying the letter of 1 Peter. He would be the mailman, so to speak, of 1 Peter to various churches. And in that letter, Peter calls him, quote, a faithful brother as I regard him. And so Silas put together quite a track record over his career as a missionary, as a pastor. And on this second missionary journey of Paul, in which his main accompanying preacher is, is now the great Silas, they stopped in the city of Lystra, and they picked up a young up-and-coming preacher named Timothy. And then very often in the New Testament, you'll see Paul, Silas, and Timothy referred to together. They continued strengthening the churches that Paul had planted on his first missionary journey. The second missionary journey was basically an attempt to revisit those churches. And then in Troas, Paul received a vision from God to come to Macedonia. This would would be the first time Christians are going to Europe. They set sail from Troas on the the little hop across the Aegean Sea, which is just a a little section, a little really giant lagoon off of the, the north side of the Mediterranean. And so they go from Asia Minor into Europe. Three cities later, just slightly inland, they come to the city of Philippi. The city of Philippi was originally called Crinides, but in 356 B.C., King Philip of Macedon brought the city under his rule, and he named it after himself. And this was because much of his resources, much of his money, his, and even his government wealth was drawn from the precious metals that are mined near Philippi. It was, a, it was rich in precious metals. Well, then in the second century B.C., Rome successfully took Macedonia, and they made Philippi a Roman province, and they used Philippi, they made Macedonia, rather, a Roman province, and they used Philippi as sort of an outpost, sort of a, a, a fort on the, the Via Ignatia, which was the overland highway that linked Rome to the east. And so Philippi was very important to kind of guard the outlying sections of the Roman Empire. Well, in 42 BC, two major battles were fought near Philippi between two separate Roman factions that were fighting each other. Cassius and Brutus on one side, these are the men who had plotted the assassination of Julius Caesar. They were defeated by Antony and Octavian. And you know Octavian better as the title he was given later, Caesar Augustus, the first true emperor of Rome, under whose rule the famous census of Luke chapter 2 was taken. So now Philippi went from just being this provincial outpost out in the middle of nowhere to a full-fledged capital of a new colony of Rome. If I can put it in terms we understand, it's like in the early history of the United States going from being a territory to a state. As a matter of fact, Philippi became sort of the Florida of the Roman Empire. What do we mean by this? Well, retired veteran Roman soldiers were given land allotments and they would settle permanently in and around Philippi. So it was sort of a retirement community for retired soldiers. It was a thriving city. It became really the economic, the political, and the social center of the whole area. And so it was a big deal to go to Philippi. And so, as was Paul's custom, he always wanted to take the gospel where the greatest concentration of people were. And so he wanted to go where there was the biggest population. And so God's command to him to go to Macedonia, to go to Philippi, I think must have been very exciting for Paul and for Silas and for Timothy. This is the center of where things are happening. Luke, the physician, the church historian, was also with the group. He's the author of Acts, and we note that they were together. Look with me at verse 11. 
And so, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and the Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. How do we know that Luke was with them? Because he uses that pronoun, we. I was with them. We were there together. The first Sabbath that they were there, the group went to the riverside. There was no synagogue there. There weren't enough Jewish men to have a synagogue. And so they went to the riverside, and they struck up a conversation with a group of women who had gathered together. These are women that the New Testament, the book of Acts in particular, calls God-fearers or a worshiper of God. This does not mean they were Christians. It means that they had come to believe that the God of the Jews was the one true God and that there is only one God, but that's all they knew. And so they, they couldn't take it any further than that. And so Paul strikes up a conversation with them. One woman in particular, verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And then on a different day, the missionaries were once again on their way to the place of prayer by the river to, be, to meet with these new believers. And we see in Acts 16, verse 16, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, let me stop right here for a moment. Why would a demon-possessed girl be proclaiming the truth? Why would she be doing this? Well, she can't help it. The demons know the truth. They just don't like it. They know the truth. In verse 18, she kept doing this for many days, and it says Paul became greatly annoyed. Now, why would he be annoyed that this girl is proclaiming the truth from a demon? Because the gospel does not need nor does it want the help of demons to proclaim the truth of Christ. And so it says here in verse 18, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, and it means exactly what it says, he turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Verse 19, when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, in other words, the girl was making money for them, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Now, it's very interesting that the rulers certainly were likely receiving some sort of payoff from these sorts of, of divination businesses because they immediately fall into uh, the, the difficulties that the owners of this girl wanted Paul and Silas to come to. And so they went right along with it, and now... For some reason, Luke and Timothy, they're spared. They're, they're not dragged in here. But Paul and Silas are beaten severely by law enforcement and by the crowd. They're battered. They're bleeding. They have bruises. They have welts forming on their bodies. Not to mention the legal injustice. Acts 16.37 tells us that since both Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, this was an illegal beat, beating. And they had been treated as guilty until proven innocent. They had no legal status, no rights. They were put in the innermost secure part of the city prison. 
Their feet were put in stocks, which would be kind of a wooden device just to keep you in one position. And now we come to the real meat of the lesson that we want to learn tonight, understanding how they got here. We come to Acts chapter 16, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And you know the rest of the story. We always want to skip to verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Now, I think it's easy to say, sure, I'd be singing hymns too if I was about to be released just waiting for that earthquake. Isn't that great? But they didn't know that. It's important for us to understand this because look with me at verse 37. After they get out, Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens. If you're treated as a non-Roman citizen, it's as if you have no, not just legal rights, you have no human rights. They could rot in that prison indefinitely. They could live through the experience for years and years. They could literally be forgotten about. Essentially, they had no legal rights at this point. And so we're going to stop at verse 25. I'm purposefully not going to move on to the glorious ending of Acts 16. That's too easy. That's too easy for us to do. Because in your Bible, after the phrase, and the prisoners were listening to them, comma, you have about a, an eighth of an inch of white space, and suddenly there was a great earthquake. They didn't have that eighth of an inch of white space. They had an, a lifetime of possible suffering, maybe early execution in front of them. That's all they had. And so we're not going to go on to that glorious ending. We're going to stop right where they were. In fact, a popular current ministry leader teaches on what it means to wait on the Lord. And using the story of Paul and Silas in prison, the final lesson on waiting on the Lord from this story is, according to this ministry leader, Quote, when people patiently and expectantly wait on God in the midst of horrible circumstances, suddenly God breaks through. That that's the lesson. In other words, if you wait correctly, then God will end your time of waiting. Just experientially, I've found that that's not true. And you found that as well. The problem with that thinking is that now that makes your motivation to wait with excellence to get what you want from God instead of to be pleasing to God. Your motivations completely changed. It becomes selfish. And so Paul and Silas had no knowledge that they were about to be released, and they fully knew this could be the end for them. So how did they begin waiting on the Lord? How did they begin? Well, verse 25 really provides our outline for us. First, they began waiting with prayer. They began waiting with prayer. Now, you might say, well, that's obvious. I find that more Christians than not begin waiting with panic, not with prayer. These men had been beaten with rods. This would cause injury to their, to their heads, to the spleen, to the liver, to kidneys. All the major organs are susceptible to injury. It would also cause lacerations. Even minor bone fractures were possible. These men were badly hurt. And today they would have been taken to an emergency room. But there's no recorded medical treatment here. They're simply taken to prison, locked in stocks, and left, and I'm sure for Luke, who was the author of the book of Acts, and looking on from a distance, a physician knowing that his friends, Paul and Silas, had been beaten so severely, and he's unable to treat them, how difficult that must have been for him. But with injuries this severe, 
Your body screams for rest. You need that inactivity to let it recover. And in their case, it may be that the pain was so severe that they weren't able to sleep. And so in either case, at midnight, a time when the inmates would normally be settled in, and when certainly Paul and Silas would need to be kind of licking their own wounds, so to speak, and and trying to recover, we find them in prayer. It's very interesting that the Greek term used here, prosukamai, it's a general term for prayer of any kind. And so we can expect that their prayers had different functions. It's just a, a general prayer. Based on the general nature of prayer, they very likely could have been praying for wisdom, to have the right kind of response to their affliction. They could have been praying for mercy and for help. They could have certainly been praying for comfort from their wounds, to to ask the Lord for help. They could have been affirming the Lord's glory and his might. They even could have been asking questions in order to be aware of God's will. God, what are you doing in this? What do you want us to do? How do you want us to respond? And certainly I would imagine that they would be including thanksgiving, that though they were beaten, they were still alive, they were still able to pray They were simply following the example of Jesus when he poured out his own soul in prayer late in the night, as Matthew 14, 23 records. And so instead of looking only to their own needs, instead of their immediate concerns, they're drawn to quickly run to God's safe haven, to God's safe place of grace, to check in with their Savior and with their God. And they were praying together. And it's very likely that they were taking turns well, why, why would we say that? Well, the Apostle Paul himself said in 1 Corinthians fourteen forty that in a corporate worship setting, which this is, two of them, corporate worship, he said, quote, all things should be done decently and in order. And so they're taking turns. They're certainly praying with one another, praying for one another. And perhaps they're praying for Luke and Timothy as well. For, for, for all they knew, maybe they'd been beaten as well and are someplace else or even dead. I think this is so, so instructive. And this little tiny phrase, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying. This is so instructive that this was their instinct to begin this time of uncertainty before the Lord. Based on that example, I'd like to suggest two very concrete ways to apply this. Because I I know that as a Christian, you say, well, of course I believe in prayer. I'm amazed at how many times we don't actually live that out especially in the midst of a difficult time. But based on their example, let me suggest two ways to apply this principle. First of all, and if you don't remember anything else tonight, remember this one. Determine to begin your time of waiting with an official time of prayer. An official time of prayer to inaugurate this time. It's as if you're in the starting gates and the gun has gone off and it's time to run. And instead of running, you drop to your knees. And you say, before I run this race, before I go down this road, before I progress any further, I'm going to drop down and I'm going to acknowledge that I am in the hand of a sovereign God to affirm to the Lord that you trust him, that you're confident in his plan, that you will receive everything from him, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. You'll take it. It is to join with Job who affirmed to his wife in Job 2 verse 10, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil, which can be translated disaster? Shall we not take the good things and the bad also? And how sweet is the testimony of your faith if when you receive bad news that a time of waiting is now upon you, that you instinctively go to prayer. 
if I can put it this way, when God says, ready, set, wait, then you drop to your knees. That's the first instinct. You drop to your knees. There's a second application we might make to schedule regular times of prayer for your waiting. Why regular times of prayer? Because when we're waiting on something, we tend to obsess over that thing, and we tend to decide that we have to stay at a high alert level of stress and anxiety as if somehow that's going to move the heart of God. That I need to stay really, really worried, really, really stressed out. I'm going to think about this 24-7 so that I can somehow help the heart of God. All that's going to do is give you a stroke. It's not going to do anything else. And so you schedule regular times. Follow the promise of Hebrews 4.16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in time of need. So what are you going to ask for? When you're going before the Lord with these regularly scheduled times, I've even told people in counseling, I've said on Tuesdays and Thursdays, you are not allowed to pray anxious prayers. You can only pray prayers of thanksgiving. But when you're, when you're in these prayers, what are you asking for? Two things, and they're the opposite. The first thing is a... How long, O Lord, prayer? It's hasten, Lord, hurry. How long do I have to go through this? And then on the opposite side, you also pray what we might call help me wait graciously prayers. Not how long, not get me out of this, but Psalm 27, 14, wait for the Lord, be strong, let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. I'll even have people pick, divide that in half and on, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, you pray the hasten and hurry prayers. And on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, you pray the help me to be at peace, help me to wait graciously and thankfully. Well, how long do you pray? Here's a simple formula. Until your heart has been emptied and your cup overflows. That's it. Until your heart has been emptied and your cup overflows with God's mercies. What a beautiful example these men set. They were instinctively driven to that beautiful, safe place of prayer. And trust me, in looking back, your greatest times of prayer in this life will always be when you're waiting for something. Every time. That will be your sweetest times of prayer. They began waiting with prayer. How else did they begin waiting on the Lord? Well, second, they began waiting with praise. They began waiting with praise. They were singing hymns to God. And this is an important distinction. The, the, the grammar here is very clear. To God is a direct object of the verb singing hymns. In other words, they weren't just singing to comfort themselves, which songs can certainly do. They weren't just singing to drown out the noises of other prisoners moaning and groaning all around them. They were singing to God. And these are truths, songs of truth about God, directed to God for the pleasure of God and for the glory of God. I wish I knew what hymns they were singing. We don't know. We're not told. But we do know what hymns are. They're God-focused, theologically scriptural songs which rehearse the truths of the gospel, rehearse the truths of God. In fact, we have examples in Scripture of possible early Christian hymns embedded right into the New Testament texts. Now, scholars don't agree on whether these texts are hymns first, and then they became incorporated at the direction of the Holy Spirit into Scripture, or whether they became hymns later, or whether they're just extra poetic expressions of biblical truth. But in any case, the one thing that scholars do agree upon is that there are places in the New Testament 
They are just different. They're poetic. They're unique. They're so compact in their truth, very much like a good hymn. Some of these passages that may, in fact, be early Christian hymns, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, the description of the humble and exalted Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 15 through 20, the description of Christ, the preeminent creator of all things. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, the, the Trinitarian single Greek sentence, which explains the roles of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in our salvation. We have 1 Timothy 3.16, a very short synopsis of the entire ministry of Jesus Christ. Listen to this compact little hymn in 1 Timothy 3.16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's so hymn-like. It's so glorious to see that truth compacted like that. So maybe they were singing hymns that are now part of our New Testament. It could be, very likely, both of them are Jewish. Maybe they were singing psalms that applied to their situation. A lot of different guesses have been put forward as to what psalms they might have sung. Maybe it was Psalm 16. I would certainly think that verses 7 and 8 would apply to them. Bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Certainly, we might think Psalm 34 might be appropriate to them. I will bless the Lord at all times. My praise shall continually be in my mouth. And then verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. I love Psalm 28, verse 7. Many have said this might be a possibility. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts and with my song I give thanks to him. In any case... They were singing hymns, and I want you to notice something. I know this may seem obvious. They knew the hymns. They knew them. How is that? They'd been worshiping together regularly for a long time. And so they had an arsenal of praise, so to speak, at their disposal. By the way, this is structured like a formal worship service. Did you know that? They didn't just pray and then sing. The, the phrase, they were praying is a present participle. It indicates a continual stream of prayer. And you put that together with the verb singing hymns. This is an imperfect verb, which means it's repeated. What does this mean? You put these together, they would pray, then they would sing. They would pray, then they would sing. They would pray, then they would sing. They put together a little two-person formal worship service with two great pastors there in the prison in stocks praying and singing. The great reformer Martin Luther believed wholeheartedly that one of the great keys to the spiritual health of a Christian, the spiritual health of a local church, was congregational singing, which, by the way, congregational singing was essentially lost before the Reformation. Luther stated this. He said, quote, For God has cheered our hearts and minds through his dear Son, whom he gave for us to redeem us from sin, death, and the devil. He who believes this earnestly cannot be quiet about it but he must gladly and willingly sing and so for luther singing is an, just an integral part of our trust in the lord every year in october we like to remember some of the reformers october 31st we take as the the official date of the beginning of the great reformation one of those reformers that we we love and we cherish is a man by the name of John Huss, or Jan Hus, as some would say, on July 6th, 
1415, he was burned at the stake by the Catholic Church. And as the flames came around him, an eyewitness account described what he did. And I'm quoting from an ancient source here. Quote, when the executioners at once lit the fire, the master, that is John Huss, immediately began to sing in a loud voice. At first, Christ, thou son of the God, have mercy upon us. And second, Christ, thou son of the God, have mercy upon me. And in the third place, thou who art born of Mary the Virgin. And when he began to sing the third time, the wind blew the flame into his face. And thus, praying within himself and moving his lips and his head, he expired in the Lord. The last thing that this great defender of the gospel did was to sing, even with flames all around him. I don't think any trial or any time of waiting can withstand the one-two punch of prayer and praise. That is a one-two knockout punch to pour out your heart to God for help and to give him the adoration that he deserves. I always wonder why, why do we wait for the church to be gathered together to sing hymns? Why do we wait for that? We need hymns. Paul and Silas proved this. If anybody wants to say, well, hymns are just so old-fashioned, I say, oh, they are. They're 2,000 years old, and they're glorious. You need your Bible, and you need your hymnal. And with your Bible and your hymnal, you are unstoppable. Do you understand that? The hymnal gives voice to the truths of Scripture, lifting your praise to God, strengthening your own heart. And listen, if I can speak to families, and families mean if you have one of you or more living in one place, that's a family. I don't care whether you're musically talented or not. That misses the point. Sing together. Sing together. You know what I always want my children to believe? I want them to believe that following Christ and singing to God are two sides of the same coin. That Christians sing. And that we don't just wait to go to church. We sing. We make singing to the Lord like breathing. I want my children, I want your children, I want you to know that the moment that the waiting starts, you instantly and instinctively begin singing. You begin proclaiming the praises of God. You show me a saint who sings to the Lord, I'll show you a saint who knows how to wait upon God. The two go hand in hand. But there's one more way that Paul and Silas began their waiting on the Lord. They began with prayer. They began with praise. And we might put it this way. They began with purpose. They began with purpose. This is a good example, as good an example as I've ever seen, of how a time of suffering has immediate ramifications beyond just the believer who's suffering. Look with me at verse 25. Let's just read the whole thing again and notice the last phrase. At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. This is so important. Here are Paul and Silas noticeably not doing several things. They're not cursing their circumstances. They're not cursing their jailer. They're not crying and wailing about how hurt they are. They're not screaming for the ACLU to come defend them. And they are noticeably doing something that these prisoners have never witnessed. They're witnessing a Christian worship service. The first one they've ever seen, ever heard. And because of the gospel focus of these men, the prayers they prayed undoubtedly spoke of Christ and the cross. And because hymns are by definition spiritual truth, gospel truth, Christ-centered truth, set to music, they heard songs of Christ, songs of the cross. 
And how amazing must that have been for these lost prisoners to hear men of God praying and praising. How wonderful, how soothing. Paul and Silas, do you understand what they did? They literally brought a little piece of heaven down to this inner maximum security section of the prison. And by the way, just to set the scene further, all of them were in the pitch black. All of them were completely in the dark. After the earthquake, which opened all the doors, the jailer had to call for lights to be brought. There were no lights there. They didn't have night lights. They didn't have a street lamp. They didn't have any of that. It was pitch black. And so here are all the prisoners in the dark, many undoubtedly having been beaten just like Silas and Paul. And from the dark, if they listen, they hear two men speaking to God like God is their friend and singing songs that give hope that this God could save them. Hymns of praise just floating through the dark hallways of this prison to the ears of unbelieving listeners no doubt calming their souls and showing them a radically different way to respond to trouble. So even in prison, the Lord provided this ultimate gospel opportunity. And as Paul would find out later in in greater proportion, he often does this. And this was simply practiced for a later time. For Paul, during his first Roman imprisonment, a number of years later, he's under house arrest and Paul would be guarded in shifts by a member of the imperial guard this is caesar's personal army considered to be part of his household it was all part of his household and so many of them would come and go as paul said in philippians 113 that the whole imperial guard found out that his imprisonment was for christ and so these guards they would come and do their their day-long shifts they would hear paul speaking to his guests about the gospel and what was the result of this this is phenomenal philippians 4 21 and 22 says Paul says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. He was preaching the gospel to them. And here now in this Philippian prison, Paul and Silas are depicting in very concrete, observable fashion to an audience of unbelievers the Christian virtue of suffering with joy in the midst of pain and anguish. They were living Romans 5, 3, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Written by Paul, by the way. They were demonstrating, James 1, 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. They were illustrating, 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Listen, if I can apply this directly to your heart, when you enter into a time of waiting, very, very rarely is that done privately. Very rarely is that done privately. You do have an audience. And for Paul and Silas, their audience was the group of unbelieving prisoners all around them. And if you ask those prisoners how Christians wait and suffer from their observation, Paul and Silas would be their only only example. So I imagine they would say, well, it looks to me like Christians have a great trust in God. They speak to him like he's a friend and they sing songs to him. I, I really enjoyed it. That would be their only experience. Would you keep in mind that while you wait, you have an opportunity to demonstrate the grace of Christ both to the unbeliever and to the believer? And I would even encourage you at the beginning of your time of waiting, if you want to wait with purpose, gather a small group of trusted, close believers and tell them your spiritual goals for this time of waiting. Not just pouring your heart out on them. Certainly we need people with whom we can weep 
But it's a mistake to think that emotional relief provided by empathy by your family and by talking something to death is actually the solution. That's not actually the solution. So when you gather people together to weep with you and to come alongside you, that's great and that's fabulous. Tell them your spiritual goals. Tell them that I want to demonstrate joy. I want to sing 10 hymns every week. I want to read 10 chapters of the Bible a day. I want to share my faith with somebody one time a week. I want to set some goals that will make me do this with purpose. Otherwise, then, all you're waiting for is for a solution. And it may be that the Lord extends your wait. And what an impact the faithfulness of Paul and Silas had, not because they were freed miraculously, but because of the impact of their conduct after they were freed. This helps us understand that God has a greater redemptive purpose in this prison stay. It wasn't just about, it wasn't just a, 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 a mindless act of God that had no context. When the great earthquake that opened the, the door that night shook the foundations of the prison, all the doors were unhinged, they were opened, Everyone in stocks and chains were unfastened. The, the jailer awoke. His house was connected to the prison in all likelihood. He saw that he was vastly outnumbered by all the freed prisoners. And knowing that he would incur the death penalty for letting all these prisoners go, he drew his sword to kill himself. The, the thought being better for me to take my own life than to go on trial and be executed and be publicly humiliated. But from the darkness... In Acts 16, 28, Paul cried out, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights from his assistants, and he rushed in, and with trembling and fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Now, we don't know what Paul and Silas were praying or what they were singing, but we do know that the theological content of it must have been enough to impress the jailer to see this earthquake as confirming what they said is true that the God that they are praising is the true God. And he was forced to come to terms with the God that Paul and Silas serve. Now, why did the other prisoners stay in their cells? That, that really is pretty much a mystery to us. Some commentators speculate that they were afraid of leaving on pain of death if they tried to escape. Others feel that they were so impressed with the message of Paul and Silas that they just stayed. I, I don't think either of those opinions can be supported with enough evidence to really make a case for it. I think the better way to look at this is that the other prisoners are just ancillary figures at this point in the drama. The focus now goes to the jailer. And I want to focus on him. The text tells us the result of the prisoners staying in their cells. It saved the life of the jailer because God's plan was to not only keep the jailer alive, but to regenerate him, to save him. And when the jailer knelt at the feet of Paul and Silas, he said in verse 30, Sirs, literally, lords, what must I do to be saved? And in verse 31, And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is phenomenal. They go from being in the maximum security part of the prison to going to the jailer's dining room and being served dinner and having food. This is amazing. All of his family, all of his servants, they were all baptized. Why? Verse 34, because they all believed. 
And Paul and Silas, from a, from a human perspective, can you imagine Acts chapter 16, if verse 25 said about midnight, Paul and Silas were complaining and whining and moaning about what happened to them. They would have derailed what God intended for this. And the jailer would not have heard the gospel. And he would not have come to faith in Christ. But through the faithfulness of these men to begin their time of waiting with prayer and with praise and with purpose, God strengthened this brand new church in Philippi. Now the new church had Lydia and all her household and likely the women that she met with from verse 13. They had the demon-possessed girl who was delivered by Paul from bondage. Now you have the city jailer, all of his household, all of his servants. And there were others. Look at the last verse of Acts 16. The very last verse, verse 40. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So now you have, in the matter of weeks, this little church has been planted and growing. And you just had a huge church growth. How? The jailer and his family, his servants. And through this time of trial, of beating, of waiting on the Lord, the the Philippian jailer was now an integral part of the church. Several years later, Paul would be in jail again, as I mentioned, this time incarcerated under house arrest in Rome. He's awaiting an audience with Caesar himself. Under house arrest, he was expected to provide for himself through friends and through families, not to mention that he needed financial support for his ministry as a whole to continue his preaching elsewhere. And during these couple of years that he was in prison, there was one church in particular that was so faithful to support him And so Paul wrote them an extended thank you letter, a letter filled with joy and with love for this church. And it is known to us now as the letter to the Philippians. And he says this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, the first day, the day of Lydia, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, how he loved them, how he had affection for them. And why not? Listen to the generous, gospel-focused heart of the Philippian church, now growing, now thriving. At the end of the book, Paul says, It was kind of you to share my trouble. And he means financially. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Let me stop right there. Even in Thessalonica, where did Paul go after Philippi? When he and Silas are released, they're still bruised, they're still bleeding, they're still battered. They walked about 100 miles to Thessalonica. And they're there for only three months, meaning that even this little bitty brand new church in Philippi, they sent money on to Paul in Thessalonica just weeks and months later. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. And he says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. 
And he says this, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. The church at Philippi sent people to find him, to make sure he had plenty. And like any faithful church does with their shepherds, they gave him much more than he needed. And here's where the faithfulness of Paul and Silas in that dark prison in the many years, many years earlier, finds purpose, and we see how God uses it. Did you put the pieces together? Did you catch the irony of God's plan here? God orchestrated this situation in which Paul and Silas are in jail in Philippi. They are faithful to pray, to praise, and to do so with purpose as they begin to wait on the Lord. And because of their faithfulness, this miraculous earthquake which releases them confirms the truth of the gospel to the jailer the jailer and his household get saved now becoming faithful members of the church at philippi this church in in later years finds out that paul is in need and they take this large collection with certainly the jailer whose life paul saved with a word would have undoubtedly contributed to very generously do you see the irony of the plan of god that god took the jailer who put Paul and Silas in prison and in stocks, and he saved him, and now that man is part of sending money to Paul when Paul is in prison once again. I think the only word to describe that plan is beautiful. It is beautiful. I will continue throughout this series to reiterate to you that your waiting on the Lord is never just about you. It's never just about you, You are part of the intricate tapestry of the long-range, longitudinal, redemptive plan of God. You're just a part of it. And you too can pray in the night. You too can sing in the night. And you can do so with purpose to be an example that God can use for his glory. Paul and Silas lived out Psalm 42, verse 8. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, Any fool can sing in the day. Songs in the night come only from God. They are not in the power of men. Paul and Silas would advise, be mindful of how you begin waiting. Begin with prayer and with praise and with purpose. And then the moment... The moment, the time in which you begin waiting, instead of it being something to be dreaded, now can become a fragrant offering that you offer to the Lord as a sacrifice of praise to him. Might that be your response? Respond well. If you're waiting now and you haven't been doing so well, tomorrow's the first day. And you start how? With prayer, with praise, and with purpose. Our Father, we come to you tonight knowing that this either is or will be the the lot of every believer. You have called us to suffer with Christ. That is part of our salvation. It is part of our, our calling as Christians. And Lord, every every believer has sort of a different flavor or different variety of suffering. And I think very often we wish we would have any other variety except the one you've given to us which perhaps is the very reason why we have that particular variety. And so, Lord, every person here represents a time of waiting. Either they're waiting now or or they've been waiting for a very long time or perhaps they will 
enter a time of waiting in the future. And so, Lord, we just pray for your kindness and your grace to them that as they pray, not only for you to hasten and to hurry, they would also pray for patience to wait well, to praise you. And and perhaps some of them might have an earthquake moment where you will release them from this time of waiting miraculously and joyfully. And we, we would love that and we pray for that and we acknowledge that you are certainly powerful to do that. But Lord, when one year passes and then three and then five and then ten and perhaps even in decades that dawning realization that we might be waiting beyond this life. When that happens, Lord, help us to pray, help us to praise, help us to do so with purpose so that we might be able to be, in the best sense of this word, proud of how we responded, that we might be able to hold our heads high, as it were, because we bowed them low, to honor you in the way that we wait. So, Lord, we do pray for you to hurry, for you to hasten, for you to bring solutions, but we also pray to be grown in depth, in maturity, and in patience, to have great, great patience with the situation at hand, even unto our dying day, and to join with those glorious saints of Hebrews 11 who are exalted and extolled because they waited so well. Give us the strength, Lord, to wait on you. Make our time of waiting a time where we grow tremendously, where our prayers are sweet, our praise is heartfelt, and the purpose we accomplish is all to your glory for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Christ. And it is in his name that we pray and thank you.